This message by Thabiti Anya Bwile, titled The Church of Worship, is made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. It was recorded during the fourth general session at our Worship God 2009 conference. Thabiti serves as senior pastor at First Baptist Church of Grand Cayman in the Cayman Islands. It's a joy to be with you this morning. Let's pray and turn to God's Word. Our Lord and our God, we are desperate. Even if for some reason that stems from the dullness of our heart and our our own spiritual blindness and imperception, we don't know that we're desperate. We are desperate for more of you. Desperate to have our eyes opened and to see more of your glory. We're desperate for your grace and your mercy. We're desperate for your compassion. We're desperate to hear from you. And Lord, if we don't hear from you, we perish. If we don't have our hearts opened and, and our eyes opened, and if we don't receive humbly your, your word, Lord, how, how will we be fed? How will we live? How will we understand? How will we decide? How will we think? How will we take action? How will we feel rightly? Except, Lord, you meet our desperation with the comfort, the love, the power of your voice and your presence through your word applied by your spirit. To every soul, Lord, speak. Make every soul more, more thirsty and desperate. And fill that hunger, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. There's an ongoing debate among Bible-believing Christians about the necessity and the nature of the local church. On the one hand, you have folks who have a tendency to emphasize the the spiritual church, the invisible church, the, the universal church, to the minimization of the local, visible church. Uh, For some of those folks, the the local church is, is something a person can be committed to if they like, but they need not be. And when they are, those churches are often composed of people with like experiences and interests, etc. They are affinity clusters based on common culture or age or some characteristic. Membership in the local church is, uh, according to some of those folks, already settled because every Christian is a member of the universal body of Christ. And as they read scripture, they see no requirements really for, for involvement in a local church for local church membership, which is often seen as a kind of a holdover from a from a bygone era, a kind of quaint relic, or something borrowed from the secular world, like country clubs and rotary clubs and the like. A local church membership might even be viewed as divisive 
contrary to a, a needed and a healthy Catholicity, a, a, a universality of the church. That's one side. On the, on the other side, if you were thinking of these as poles, you, you might have folks with the tendency to, to emphasize the visible local nature of the church and to minimize the spiritual and the universal church. Local membership, according to those folks, is, is something a Christian ought or must be committed to if they wish to live healthy Christian lives and obey the scriptures. Christians are to involve themselves intentionally and meaningfully and fully in the lives of other Christians in a local congregation. Membership in a universal church is is assumed and acknowledged as a reality, but but that must or ought to be expressed and demonstrated in the local visible church. Some might even say that New Testament Christianity makes no sense apart from an active, alive assumption and understanding of commitment and membership in the local visible church. People arrive at these two poles differently. Some get there theologically. Again, what they sort of emphasize in terms of the, the universal church or the local church, etc. They're wrestling with the scripture. That, that theological orientation pushes them to one pole or the other. Some get there experientially. They've had some experiences with the church that either commend or not the local church and involvement in it. Others get there by way of evaluation. They look at the church, they assize it, and they say the church isn't doing this or isn't doing that, or the church is doing this and doing that, and therefore is worthy or not worthy of admiration and involvement. But if those are the two poles, where do you fall out this morning? Does local church membership and involvement matter to you? If so, how? If so, why? If not, why not? And how does your approach to the local church square with the vision of the church that we see in the scriptures? Have, have you thought that through? Have you thought much about the local church and, and what God calls you to do and be in the church? Do you see any connection between your own personal spiritual life and your involvement in a local congregation? Is there any connection in your mind as you conceive of the Christian life between how well you're doing spiritually and how involved you are in a local assembly? Now, when I say church this morning, don't think building or Sunday service. Think people. When I say church this morning, I'm referring to a gathering of people called out under the Lordship of Christ, mutually committed to each other and Christ. Covenant community of people. And when I say worship, don't don't think Sunday morning and what we sing and, and, and what is preached. But for this morning, when I say worship, think of all of life. Think Monday to Saturday. Think your job, your home, your parenting. Think your neighbors, your friends, your purchasing decisions. In other words, 
What I want to argue this morning, what I want to persuade you of, if you're not already persuaded, is that the local church and your, your active participation, membership in, commitment to, is essential and critical to your well-being and the well-being of the church itself. Two things prosper in the local church when the local church is central to our understanding of living the Christian faith. Our souls prosper individually, and our churches prosper collectively. When I say the local church is essential and critical, I mean essential and critical the way a pacemaker is to a person with a diseased heart. You can't live without it. When I say it's essential and critical, I mean essential and critical the way a nursing mother's breast is to an infant. He won't grow and be nourished without it. When I say the local church is essential and critical, I mean essential and critical the way a husband and wife's loyalty and fidelity are essential and critical to a trusting, loving marriage. You cannot love without it. Local church is to be the central set of relationships, of belonging to our spiritual lives. To put, it, to put it another way, to put it in the negative. If membership in a healthy local church is not central to your understanding of the Christian life and your daily living, your worship, you are slowly, perhaps imperceptibly starving, shriveling, and becoming loveless even if you don't feel it. That's the thesis. I want to make five points by looking at a couple of passages of Scripture where we have in view for us the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4, and 1 Peter 4. Let's start with 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to read in your hearing from verses 12 to 27. Listen to this like it's the word of God. (laughs) For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye... Where would, the, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker and indispensable, and on those parts, excuse me, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, 
giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. First point, we should love the church because it is God's workmanship. Because it is God's workmanship. God composes the church. Let that ring. It is God who composes the church. Intimately, intentionally, specifically, God puts together the church. I wonder if you notice the the Trinitarian nature of this composition. So in verse 12, we read Jesus is is the one who incorporates the, the redeemed people of God into his own body. He incorporates us into himself. We become part of him as the the body is attached to the head. Incidentally, when we say member and talk about church membership, we're not borrowing from secular organizations. The word member or part is our word. It is here in sacred writ thousands of years before the Lions Club come on the scene. And when we say member, we're saying something inherently Christological, not sociological. When we say member, we're talking about the fact that we as individual Christians have been joined spiritually together with Christ, united to him in his body. We are not envisioning voluntary dues paying membership. But do give your tithes and offerings. I don't want to undermine any pastor's ministry here. (laughs) This word, this idea is a uniquely Christian idea. It is Christ who joins us to his body and makes us part of himself. Notice also that that the spirit is at work in the composition of the body. Verse 13, we are all baptized into one spirit, one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free. Is trans-ethnic and trans-class. People from every walk of life are engrafted into the body of Christ, baptized into the body of Christ, made to drink of one spirit. The spirit is at work placing us into this body. And not only is the spirit at work, and not only is, is, is the son at work, but did you, did you notice verse 18? God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. The hand selection of God, the specific choosing and electing of individuals. It's as though God were looking out from eternity before eternity began, seeing all that would be. And he says, now, here's this one standing on the precipice of hell, leaning, trying not to fall into the abyss. His soul singed with the flames of hell. It's as though the father says, I'll use that one. And the son says, I'll rescue them. And he takes upon himself the Father's wrath and he he suffers in our place. He, He bears our sin and bears our shame. And as he stretches his arms in that cross, he's grabbing us from the pits of hell. 
And the, and the Spirit speaks up and the Spirit says, I will seal them in Christ. I will guarantee them until the day of the purchased possession. And they all think together and say, let us compose this thing called the church. Let us arrange each part according to our our sovereign wisdom and and according to our our infinite love. Let Let us place them, each one specifically, in the body of the Son. Now, as my mama would say, she's the best theologian I know, God don't make no jump. He don't like ugly, and he don't make no jump. See, as non-Christians, perhaps we rejected God and rejected the greatness of God and, 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 and raised all kinds of complaints against God. Or maybe as a non-Christian, you thought, you know what? There's suffering in the world. God must not be good. Or maybe as a non-Christian, you said, you know, there's, there's evil in the world. God must not be righteous or, or he must not be powerful enough to, to end suffering and to, and to end unrighteousness. It's, it's interesting how the, the fall echoes in the mind of sinful men as an indictment against God. The evidences of our own fall and our own depravity and our unregenerate mind becomes indictments against the character and the nature and the work of God. I think there's a Christian equivalent. I think the Christian equivalent to the non-Christian indictments against God is the Christian's dissatisfaction, is the Christian's disdain, is the Christian's negative critique of the local church. We have two examples in our text. Look with me in verse 21. You see there where... Where Paul anticipates this argument from those who would be reading this letter. He says there are these people who are eyes, prominent people. Who may say to the hand, I have no need of you. He's talking about the the kind of spiritual independence and and indifference to the body that, that some Christians manifest. A sense of lone ranger Christian life. Me, Kimosabi, all I need is a couple tontos. Don't need the rest. It's an indictment against God. He talks about another group here in verses 14 and 15. Those who who suffer from a kind of of spiritual insignificance. They don't see that they have a place in the body because they're they're not the prominent ones. They're they're not the ones who sing the wonderful solos. They're not the ones who who have the gift of preaching. They don't have the the sort of gifts that are out front. And and so they think themselves insignificant and, and therefore not a part of the body. Both of these cases, and in so many other cases where where Christians complain that the church doesn't do this, and the church doesn't do that, and and the church is this old institution, and and on and on and on and on. It's just a crescendo, a, a constant ringing, a constant indictment where we are saying, God, you do not know what you're doing. It's as crass as that. Consider what we've just seen. Each person in the Trinity, each person in the Godhead, actively, intimately, intentionally, fashioning this thing called the body of Christ, 
the church, doing it just as he chose. And we look at her and say, it's not working. It's not good enough. I don't need it. And we are unique in all of God's creation in our ability to demonstrate such staggering and stinking pride. This composition that God has put together from from before time began and has been executing and assembling in time and, and fashioning with his own hands. You know what the rest of the creation says when it looks at the church? Turn with me quickly. Keep your finger here in 1 Corinthians 12 to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul tells us that the church is a mystery, including Jew and Gentile in its body. It's something that was, was hidden from ages began and, and before ages passed. And he tells us that in verse 6 and following that, that he, he preaches the gospel so that this mystery of the church might be made known. So that, verse 10, look, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Perhaps an analogy would be helpful here. Many of us are parents and grandparents. And we can remember our little ones coming home, perhaps from school, perhaps from some some crafts class or something. We can remember them coming home. Mom, Dad, look what I made you. And they give you that picture they drew and and you look at it and you say, man, what a great giraffe. And they look at it, that's not a giraffe. That's the family on our vacation last week. And and what do you do? You lie, don't you? You put your hand on their shoulder and the head says, oh, this is beautiful, honey. You're not sure you want to retract the statement about it being a giraffe, but you, you say, this is beautiful, honey. What a, what a great picture. And what's the next thing you do? You're looking at that little child. You find a prominent place to display that picture. And everybody who comes in the house, you act like that's a great family portrait. You lie for the sake of your child. You know, you, you want to encourage them, you know, you... There's a kind of paternalism that's there that that doesn't want to discourage and squash. Now, when God hangs the picture of the church on on the door, the universal door, the refrigerator of the cosmos, somebody's not meant to be funny. He hangs that picture on the door. There is no one looking at God saying, what a wonderful giraffe. What is it? There's no one looking at God saying, good try. Keep working at it. There's no one being paternalistic with God. You know what the authorities and the powers and all the beings of creation say? They fall and they humble and they say, wisdom, manifold wisdom. I've never seen diverse wisdom like this. Look at what God has done in taking a man from, from Philly 
on LSD and drinking and plucking him out of the flames. And a former Muslim and enemy of the cross. Look at what he's done in choosing that five-year-old who was raised in a Christian home and and who has the testimony of of having never known such sin. Look at what he's done with, with black, white, brown, Asian, Hispanic, African, Jew. Who could do that but God? The proper response to the church, the church of worship, the people of God, when they look upon the church, isn't critique and evaluation. It isn't isn't to to spot all the limitations. The the proper response of a heart oriented toward God that loves God and loves all that God does, the proper response to the church is, Oh my God! Oh, how staggering! Oh, how beautiful! And my, this is my God, my covenant God, the one who has saved me, the one who gave his son for me. This is my God. He's my God. And we are his people. Oh my God. Look at the church. I want to suggest to you that if that is not your reaction, when you think of the local church, that heart of worship that John talked about yesterday isn't quite perfected in you. I want to suggest to you that if that's not your primary response to God's work in redemption and making for himself a people, that, beloved, we should repent and humble ourselves and ask the Lord to show to us his manifold wisdom in creating the church. Love the church because it is God's creation. It is His composition. It is His handiwork. Not only should we love the church, but we need the church. Now these these next couple of points that I want to make quickly are, are points that have to do with Spiritual reasons why you should make the church central in your life. Why you should build your life around the covenant people of the local church. We need the church because we need to be cared for. Did you see that in verses 24 and 26 of 1 Corinthians 12? Look here at the second half of of verse 24. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. But that, now at this point, you would think that the opposite of division would be what? Unity. And indeed, throughout this passage, he's been talking about the unity of the body. But notice, notice the opposite that he puts forth here. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same concern for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The the NIV renders there that, that the members may have equal concern or equal care for each other. Now, if this isn't in your 
vision statement for a church, if you are leading the church or, and you have a vision statement and like that kind of thing, if this isn't what you tell your people in your new members classes, let me encourage you to instruct your people coming into the church and the people already in the church to take this as part of your vision for what God is doing in your, in your membership, in your congregation. In other words, this is a lofty vision. This idea that, that each member in the body cares equally for every other member of the body and that every other member of the body cares for that individual. Notice the assumption there. The assumption is we need to be cared for as God's people, as his children. We, we need to be shepherded. We need it to be watched over. We need it to be kept. And where does that happen? It happens in the local church. The Christian who's most dangerous to himself is the Christian who has disassembled himself from the church. Who has began to think that they may stand independent of God's people. That's not even God's design for the church. God's design is is that there should be equal concern for every member. And that there should be care expressed in every direction inside the body. You see the implication of this. That if you're a member of a local church, you should know every member of the church. You should make it your goal to have at least one meaningful spiritual conversation with every member of your church over some period of time. You say, Pastor, I'm in a church of 2,000, man. We're a mega church. (laughs) I think the church in Corinth was the only church in Corinth. It may have been some smaller house settings. But I think Paul here is writing to the entire church in an entire city. I don't think he he envisions that Christian love could be limited to those we just happen to get along with or those we just happen to naturally click with. Christian love is to be a super abounding thing flowing over the boundaries of natural affinity. It's to be a, a, a thing that reaches out and grabs the alien the same way that Christ in the gospel and the cross reaches out and grabs us who were alienated to him in our sin. And where that gets displayed and worked out is in the local church. That's, you know, we should ask ourselves, is it our personal goal as members to show equal care and concern for every member? See, that will be the difference between our being this glorious bride And a hundred small church splits happening around us every day. You realize that a a church split is, is simply the multiplication of the fracture that comes from Christians not showing equal concern. But rather gathering unto themselves, withholding love and fellowship, withholding care, and breaking up. This vision teaches us that we need to be cared for. In fact, we need an entire church to care for us as individual members. There, there I say it, it takes a whole, (laughs) takes a whole church to raise a Christian. 
Now we're here with mostly musicians and worship types. I love you. I don't always understand you. You think with the other side of your brain, you're creative and artsy, you wear those like deco glasses and you know, you're just cool in this bohemian way that I just never got. I love you. But, but I do think in, in, in my little tenure as a pastor in a couple of different churches, I have had the privilege of pastoring and shepherding uh, professional musicians and, 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 and artistic types. I do think there is a, a curious strain in some of you that, that bends toward individualism. That, that bends toward a kind of independence. Now, you call it creative freedom or other kinds of things. But beloved, that strain, God means to reform. And that strain toward independence, and that strain toward, I do my thing Sunday morning up front with the music, then I go off and hang out with my other clique. That strain is dangerous. You need the care of the local church. You may not say that because I'm an eye, I do not need the hand. You need the hand desperately. And it is God's plan to care for you spiritually and practically inside the body. If that's your impulse, fight it and integrate yourself into the Lord's church. Renounce self-reliance and pride. Humble yourself and care for others. A third thing. We need the local church. We need the local church. We should be desperate for the local church because we need to be equipped and matured for the Christian life. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. This well-known passage. Or here we're told of, of Christ's work in his, in his descent and his ascension and his redemption and his giving gifted people to the church. Verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, but to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up. In love. I remember conducting a, a membership interview with a young woman, let's call her Jennifer. She was sharing with me the, the work of God's grace in her own life, how shortly after her marriage she was attending her family's church and, and the Lord opened her ears to hear the gospel for the first time and to believe. 
And I asked her, well, what was, what was it like in that church? Tell me, tell me how you fared as a part of that church. And, and this woman who is just naturally vibrant, always joyful, is sitting across from me across the table. I asked her this question, how was that church for you? And instantly her face fell into her lap. Crestfallen. And with this sadness, she says, you know, I thought that when the Lord saved me and and I saw people rejoicing with me, I thought there would be people who would teach us how to live the Christian life. But it was as if I was saved and they were happy, but then they put us over in a corner and left us. And so we didn't really grow. I wonder how many Christians have had that experience. We see Paul's emphasis here. He says in verse 11 that the Lord gives these gifted persons to the, to the church, to the body. And in verse 12, he tells us, he begins to tell us why. And the first thing he emphasizes in verses 11 and 12 is the equipping nature of the local church. The reason the local church has these gifted persons given to it by the Lord is to prepare the saints for the, for the work of the ministry, for building up or edifying the, the body of Christ. Our brother Jeff last night served us so well in Hebrews, and in his third point, he talked about we come to worship to be edified. Well, that happens not only on Sunday morning, but it, it should be happening Monday through Saturday as we continue to fellowship with and build our lives together with other Christians. And as our small group leaders and our, and our teachers and preachers and others are equipping us to live the Christian life. Christianity is not a self-help religion. You can find all kinds of books in your local bookstore telling you how you can, how you can build you up and depend on you for the glory of yourself. That is not the Christian faith. Biblical religion tells us that, that we're built up by another, by Christ and his brethren. We are built up by the church and equipped by the church. And we see Paul's emphasis here on maturity. We need the local church to mature. If I were to ask you the question, what does a mature Christian look like? How would you answer Most people answer, well, they read their Bibles faithfully. They have their quiet times regularly. They're people of prayer. Maybe you think of people who are are evangelists and and zealous with the gospel and and getting the good news out. Would being a member of a local church, honestly now, have been on your list? If not, it may be an indication that we're thinking, we're thinking about the faith in fairly solo and individualistic terms. But here, Paul says, where do you find maturing Christians? You find them in the body. Look at, look at, just sort of wave after wave, all these descriptions of maturity. Verse 13b, this, this equipping and building up goes on until we reach mature manhood, or until you, you could say full grown men. Which is the same as saying until we reach the measure of the, the stature of the fullness of Christ. Isn't that our ambition? To grow into the fullness of Christ? And spiritual maturity, verse 15. 
is to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And this maturity, notice, is the opposite, verse 14, of infancy, of being children in in understanding the faith and being therefore tossed back and forth by fads and trends and such things. Maturity, verse 13, is unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, growing up spiritually means being conformed to the likeness and the, and the fullness of Christ by attaining unity in the faith and the, and the knowledge of the Son of God. It is a knowing God and a knowing one another that, that raises us up collectively in love. Spiritual maturity is a community project. We cannot mature in Christ independent of the local church. Let me say that again. We cannot mature in Christ independent of the local church. God's plan for our discipleship is the local church. See there, verse 16, using this head and body imagery. We grow up into the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, that's us, with which it is equipped. When each part, that's us, is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If you're disconnected from the body or disinterested in the church, you you will not grow up into the head. I I love the way uh, Kevin DeYoung and, and Ted Kluck describe this in their book, Uh, that that Bob recommended earlier, why we love the local church. They remind us of the word decapitation, which is to cut the head off from the body. And then they, I'm not sure this is a real word, but I like it. They coined a term called, not decapitated, but decorpulated. (laughs) To cut the corpus, to cut the body off from the head. And so much of Christian thinking and living is a decorpulating of the body, a cutting off of the church and claiming to love the head at the same time. Doesn't work that way. How weird would it be to see a, they, they, they describe in the book, how weird would it be to see a, a head just sort of floating along through town somewhere and people running up and hugging the head say, ooh, I love the head, I love the head. what some spiritual lives look like. But if we love Christ, we will love his body. We will not be amputated members, hands and feet cut off, arms removed. Because those kind, that kind of member does not grow. It does not mature. It does not have life. It decays and dies. We need the church for spiritual maturity. Four. We need the local church because we need God's grace. How many of us need fresh supplies of God's grace? Hmm. Daily, hourly, moment by moment. I love that hymn, I Need Thee Every Hour. Written, I think, by a housewife. Going about her, the dailiness of life. And contemplating, I imagine my wife as she washes dishes and changes diapers and and tells my son for the 39th time, don't do that. You know, I 
You know, she describes housework as, as hanging pearls on a string that doesn't have a knot on the bottom. <laughs> I, I love her for it, too. And, and, and I imagine her writing that hymn, I, I need thee every hour. But what does what the song doesn't really answer for us? As it appeals for more of Christ and, and more of His grace, and as it, and it, as it longs for Him, what it, what it really doesn't answer, I think clearly, for me at least, is, is where is that grace found? Where, where do I get this, this more of Christ? It, it, it would leave us with almost a, a subjective sense of the spiritual life. You know, I, I need it every hour. I, let me conjure, I, I need it, let me conjure it. I, conjure, I, I think I got it, I think I got it, I think I got it. Let me try really hard. Mm. And yet in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, God tells us in his word where we find that. He's talking about the use of spiritual gifts in the local church. It says in chapter 4, verse 10, as, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace. Here's what the NIV puts it. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. Faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. In other words, the gifts that we have are grace gifts. And through the exercise of the gifts, we administer grace to others. You need more of God's grace and we all do. The practical way to get that is to involve yourself with God's people in his church. As they exercise and their, their gifts and do their parts, it's the overflow and the channeling of God's various forms of grace to us and through us. It's the way our brother was leading worship a moment ago. And describing so beautifully the things he was rejoicing in. A new home, a 12th anniversary, a two-year-old who's just been adopted celebrating that anniversary a year ago. What happened as he, as he shared in that way? What happened in your own heart? Wasn't there an impartation of grace? Wasn't there a lifting of your own soul? Wasn't there an entering into his rejoicing and his rejoicing becoming part of your rejoicing? And, and what happened as he, as he showed how life is so blended with joy and sorrow, as he turned the, the topic to the loss of a loved one? Didn't his mourning become your mourning? Did it weaken you to mourn with him? It strengthened you, didn't it? And as he led us in those songs, telling us how those songs would, would bleed together, those themes of suffering and sorrow with, with joy and jubilation, and we sang with understanding. Were you not ministered to? Were you not strengthened? And beloved, that happens not just in the gathering. It happens when we sit over coffee and talk about those things. It happens when we visit people. It happens when we bump into members in the grocery store. 
It happens wherever we gather and put our lives together. And if we intend to be the church of worship that that worships God daily, experiencing His grace daily, it means we don't only settle for the Sunday morning gathering. That's the main meal. In Cayman, culturally, families are are still very tight. And and one of the things that families do, Caymanian families do, is is Sunday is a a family day. They, They go to church, and after church, they go to mom and dad's house, and they have these big dinners. They got wonderful things there, like jerk chicken, curry chicken, oxtail. And we eat pound cake in the States, but they have something called heavy cake. That's real good. <laughs> and they enjoy the fellowship of family all afternoon. And so should it be with the spiritual family of the church. We feast together. We have that big family dinner on Sunday. But, but day to day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, the rest of the week should be spent intentionally cultivating relationships with God's people. So there's this continual impartation of grace as we share through God's gifts to us. We need the church because we need God's grace. Finally, we need the local church because we need God's love. We need God's love. We need to taste it and experience and to feel it. Bob served us so well in that last, in that last hymn, Oh, the deep, deep love. That he didn't let us rush by it, but he, he stopped us and said, you know, maybe there's someone here who, for whom that's, you know, that's just not, you're not trusting God's love. You, you're not apprehending God's love. And don't raise your hands, but perhaps you're here and you're one of those persons like myself for whom love can be an abstract thing. And one sense you know, yes, God loves me as demonstrated in the cross. It's plain and visible and compelling, but, but I got to I gotta get that down. I got to feel that. I got I to gotta touch that in some way. And again, we're either left with this subjective kind of idea where we, we just sort of, we sing louder and we jump higher and we clap louder and, and, and we try to muster up a feeling of God's love. And we settle for the fakery. Or we've got to find a way to, to access the real thing. Jesus says in John chapter 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment that I give you to love one another. He says that we are to love one another as he has loved us. The tangible way in which God's love ordinarily flows to us is through the exchange of love between his people. It's as we experience his love through faith in Christ and his completed work. It's as that, that, that love is poured into our hearts by the Spirit who cries, Abba, Father. And that love overflows the banks of our hearts to all those others around us so loved by Christ that we begin to experience in tangible, practical, daily ways the love of God. In verse 35 he says, by this all men will know you are my disciples. By your love for one another. I take it to mean that that love then is so visible and so tangible that others can see it. And others go, now, that's different. Those folks must have been with Jesus. See that love. 
and are overcome by it. And John, the beloved disciple who who wrote the Gospel of John and would have heard Jesus say those very words in John 13, he writes in his letter, 1 John 4, 19-21, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he does not see. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. It's by God's design that we should experience the love that we need from God in and through the brethren, the brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. A man who does not love his brothers, all of them, which is another way of saying a man who who shows equal concern for all the members of the body, a man who does not love that way is a man who does not love God. Now, perhaps you're noticing inadequacies in your own love. Don't despair. Love. Draw afresh the, the grace of God in the gospel and, and see there and study and meditate again upon the love of God demonstrated in the cross. Draw near to that. Call out for that. And call out for yet a greater love. A man who loves God loves the church and is loved by the church with the love of God. The church is God's glorious handiwork demonstrating his his manifold wisdom to the universe. Whatever her limitations and weaknesses, she is still gloriously more wonderful and beautiful than any alternative we imagine. And we desperately need the church for love, for grace, for maturity and and preparedness and for, for spiritual care. It is arrogant, rebellious, self reliant, God indicting pride for any one of us to think that the church is an optional extra, like the sunroof on your new car. The church is absolutely central because it is each person of the Trinity who composes her and designs her with attention to detail and for the glory of God and our good, placing in her all that we need to sojourn until Christ comes. We need everything God designs for us. Everything. To reject what God designs for his glory and our good is spiritual suicide. To reject the church is to take your own spiritual life. Don't do it. Make the church central to your affections and central to your daily worship. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for such a glorious thing as your local church. We thank you, O Lord, for the communion of saints that we enjoy spiritually in the heavens, as we heard last night, saints from all of time. We also thank you, Lord, and are humbled that you are pleased to express that communion and that glory, that wisdom in our visible local fellowships. And we repent, O Lord, of self-reliance. We repent of indifference to your work. We repent of opposing and critiquing your work in the church rather than standing in awe of this glorious composition called your body. Help us to love her more faithfully, to give ourselves to her more fully, and to enjoy, O Lord, the grace that you you measure out through her, so that we might, Lord, even in this life, join the chorus of spiritual powers that declare you are wise, you are wise, You are wise when we look upon your church. Help us and bless us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Thabiti Anyabwile, which was given at our Worship God 2009 conference and has been made available to you through Sovereign Grace Ministries. Sovereign Grace is primarily devoted to planting and caring for churches. We also hold conferences, train leaders, and publish books, music, and audio and video messages. For more information, visit www.SovereignGraceMinistries.org or call us at 301-330-7400.